welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Arbitral Insights podcast series. This is our latest edition, and I'm delighted to have with me today Marazban Barucha, MP Barucha, who is the founding and senior partner at Brucha and Partners in India. Hello, MP. Hi, Gautam. Good to see you. It's great to see you. Now, MP is someone who is known to many, many of us internationally, is a dear friend to many of us, a true inspiration and on a personal level, a great mentor for me and has been for many, many years, and I hope for many more years in my own career. I've got the pleasure of speaking to MP today to talk to him about some of the things that have inspired him in his career, some of his reflections on some of the cases he's been involved in, his thoughts for the future of international arbitration, and then some more lighthearted things, because I always like to throw in a few lighthearted things whenever I speak to any of our guests on this series, and also because MP and I have known each other for so many years, and I just feel it's always fun to talk about those things with you too, MP, so that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> no, it really is, I'm so, so delighted to be speaking to you today on this podcast, I can't tell you how, how happy I am. So MP, let's wind this all back. I mean, you've had a glittering career over many, many years. You're qualified in India, in England, Wales, and in Hong Kong. And you've experienced many, many cases, and we'll come down to those areas a bit later on. Let me so take you back to the very beginning. Let me ask you a really fundamental question. What actually inspired your desire to become a lawyer in the first place? Oh, well, the absolutely honest answer was that I didn't know what to do with myself and my father was a pretty successful lawyer. I started out with the notion of becoming a doctor, ignoring the horror that I had of frogs and insects which you had to dissect. So I tried out science, realized it wasn't my cup of tea and yes, for the want of anything better, I said, I'll do law. And then, of course, my father asked me. And that time we had law school in the morning session from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock and in the evening session. He said, are you going to do the morning session or the evening session? So I said, well, obviously, I'm going to do the morning session. And how are we going to spend the rest of your day? I said, work. So he asked me where. I said, honestly, I don't know where I'm going to work. But I'm not going to sit at home. I'm going to find a job, whatever job I can get. And his comeback to me was, if you want to really do law, you must work in a law firm. I said, fine. I don't know any lawyers, so I'm happy to come and work with you if you're going to have me. And his retort to that was, he will not step foot in my office unless and until you're a qualified solicitor. And to which I had no answer, except to say, but Papa, I don't know anybody. So he got me into Mullah and Mullah. I mean, he introduced me to my then senior, who in turn introduced me to the managing partner of Mullah and Mullah. And incidentally, in those days, there were no such names as managing partner, senior partner, etc. 
And I do recall very vividly that I went for my first interview with my senior. I dressed as a college student would. I just joined. No, my law college hadn't even started. So I just finished my bachelor's, went in dressed as a student. He made me wait for half an hour. And in that process, I was quite shell-shocked that how can you give an appointment and then not keep it on time? So I drove the pune or the office were a little crazy saying, why am I being made to wait so long? And then I went in and we chatted for a few minutes and he said, I've got to take you to my senior, but I can't take you because you're not dressed properly. I said, all right, how am I supposed to dress? Says next time when I call you, you come in a suit. So I had to take out my solitary suit for the next appointment. Met the senior partner, and there I was. I joined Mullah and Mullah. I think thirty days after my law school had started. What drove me to law was my father. Mm-hmm. What kept me in law was the sheer diversity of the subjects that you cover. And I think the most important element of the practice of law is that you can't practice unless and until you know the people. And by that, I mean your client and your opponent. So every day is a learning process, both in law, in psychology, trying to gain leverage in the right way and trying to lose as little as you can. Well, I mean, that's all, uh, you know, I think you summarized there the whole philosophy of being a lawyer and we'll go into some of that in the course of this discussion. Thank you for that, MP. I said at the beginning that um, you've been and are an inspiration to many in, in so many jurisdictions. And I've spoken to many people in a number of jurisdictions who speak so warmly of you. And I, of course, have had the benefit of working with you, knowing you for many, many years. And you are an inspiration to me. Tell me who inspired you and you've told us about how you began in the law and Mullah and Mullah is one of those much hallowed names in terms of the traditional law firms in India. But tell us about, you know, some of the people who've inspired your journey as you've become such a senior practitioner. Sure. Gautam, actually... When I started learning law, and I'm still continuing to learn, really, even before I qualified, we had giants in our profession who are no more. Uh, Sikhir Daftari, first solicitor general, Mr. Sethalwad, the first attorney general. We had, of course, Mr. Palkiwala. I had the great pleasure of instructing is not the word. I was a junior while my senior instructed, but... I had the great pleasure of being with them and learning with them. But the two people who really inspired me, one was Mr. Tucker, Gordon Tucker. He was a senior counsel of the Bombay High Court. At the point of time that I'm talking about, I had been in, in Mullah and Mullah, I think, for a year and a half. So had not completed my law school. For some strange reason, the client was extremely confident about my abilities, which I didn't know existed. <laughs> he walked up to my senior and he says, look, I've got an arbitration and I want your junior to do it. And my senior said, are you quite sure? Because he's not qualified. He said, no, I'm completely sure. You just leave it to me. And it was with great trepidation 
that the brief was instructed to me. Of course, drafting the pleadings, etc. And my senior was kind enough to help me out at every stage. But then it came to the first substantive hearing. And honestly, I had absolutely no experience of what a trial really meant. So I walked in before this panel of arbitrators. It was, I think, the arbitration council panel comprised of nine arbitrators. Nine arbitrators, wow. <laughs> and uh, started out with whatever I had to say. And of course, I was traumatized by not merely by the fact that I'm supposed to be conducting this arbitration, but there was Mr. Tucker sitting opposite me, senior counsel opposing me. So I did whatever I could for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And then Mr. Thakkar told the arbitrators that he was requesting an adjournment because he had some difficulties. Now I was extremely grateful and obviously I was not going to object. So that hearing ended. After we walked out, I said, I went up to Mr. Thakkar and I said, I'm most grateful to you, but why did you do this? And his answer was, son, you're obviously inexperienced. Arbitration is like a suit. There is something that's called evidence. There is something that is called proof. Either you learn that very quickly or you get somebody else to argue for you. That's right. It was a remarkable learning experience. Huge greatness of the man. Do not exploit the weakness of inexperience. The second inspirational person, and I think he's been really my guiding light, was Mr. K.S. Cooper. This was, I think, three years after I qualified. Now, in those days, it was very usual for a case to be listed the next day and solicitors coming to know about it only the evening before. So, normally, by about 10.30 in the morning, all the solicitors were in the High Court Library trying to engage counsel and doing the best that they could. And it was on one of those kind of mornings, Mr. Cooper walked up to me and he said, young man, I'm Khatu. So I said, yes, Mr. Cooper, I'm aware of who you are. What can I do for you? He said, no, I just wanted to meet with you personally. I've heard very good things about you. If ever you have a problem, and it doesn't matter whether you even think of briefing me or you don't, just come up to me and ask me. That's incredible. Yeah. A lesson in humility, a lesson, a, the largest of heart, the desire to teach people. Mr. Cooper was the finest, indeed the most complete lawyer that I've ever had the privilege of working with. And yes, truly, he was my inspiration. Well, I mean, those are incredible stories. I mean, I mean that, you know, listening to that is truly inspirational because I think it's that impact that certain people have and had on your career that have given you the ability to drive forward and now give back to all the many lawyers who I know uh, trained with you, learnt with you, and uh, who now several of them are at different law firms, at different chambers, but all learnt from you. And no doubt you teaching them was shaped by those who taught you. So those uh, comments were really amazing, actually. Let me ask you this, you know, in terms of arbitration as a discipline, I know you sit 
as an arbitrator, and you're, of course, a formidable counsel. Is it possible to say which of those you prefer? Do you prefer being the arguing counsel or do you prefer being the arbitrator? Uh, I think given the option, I'd rather arbitrate in the sense of be the counsel rather than an arbitrator. Because every time I've been an arbitrator, I've somehow learned what a fool I made myself <laughs> when I was the counsel. So well, being an arbitrator is fun. Whenever I've been an arbitrator, I take the opportunity. Of course, I take the permission of the parties of keeping one of my juniors alongside just to listen because it's an experience being on the other side. <laughs> and there's a lot to learn from that. Yeah, no, I think that's very interesting because... As you know, MP, the practice often is that tribunals will have a tribunal secretary to sit with them at hearings and also to sit in the background, so to speak, before hearings, just sort of watching, observing, you know, doing certain correspondence. And I suppose in that vein, um, given your point just then about how you like to have one of your juniors sitting in, would you encourage your younger partners when they're a bit more senior to perhaps take on the role as well of arbitrator and also like you being arguing counsel? Yes, because the only rule that I've followed in my practice has been to say no to only one area of practice, which is tax. I dislike that. Well, tax. that's two of us, MP. <laughs> so yes, I have encouraged diversity and I would encourage my juniors to do everything that came their way, so long as they, they are capable of doing things. Obviously, there are new things you try on. There's a learning experience and a learning curve, but they don't, they cannot learn at the cost yeah. of the client. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, and actually, you know, the point you made there about tax is actually, I mean, just took me back 30 years MP because my very first seat as a trainee solicitor 30 years ago was in the tax department. I had no choice. It was just my first seat I was given. And I was filled with trepidation. I still remember, I think, oh my goodness, I'm, I have to do tax. But I loved it. It was my first six months as a, as a trainee solicitor. I loved it because of the discipline that tax teaches you. Anyway, but luckily I'm not a tax practitioner now and the tax world is lucky I'm not a tax practitioner. Now let me on a bit more of a serious note. Let me ask you this. It's fair to say, and I'm not overstating this, that you've been involved in some seminal arbitration cases that have come before the Indian Supreme Court. There's Renu Sagar a few years ago going back, and then more recently the Prismian case before the Supreme Court. These cases, amongst others, have shaped so many core principles in the development of Indian arbitration law. And of course, as you know, MP, it's impossible for Indian arbitration law to be insulated from developments going on outside India, especially given going back several years ago, arbitration in India had a very bad reputation. Obviously, things have progressed hugely over the last many years and including in the Supreme Court cases. But tell us a little bit your reflections about some of the, the core cases you've been involved in. I know we can't sort of go into it in huge detail, but just give us some reflections on what you've thought about from those sorts of cases, seeing how Indian arbitration law has developed. You're right. Uh, India did not have a good reputation about arbitration. In a sense, Renu Sagar was a fallout 
of that because our instructions in the first instance in Yerushalayim were to gain time for just six months time, and that whole litigation started because of some personality clashes. And we managed to get six months time, and then of course things blew up. But in Renu Sagar, and Renu Sagar, we started on a very limited issue, which was based upon a court of appeals judgment. I think it was Nova Jersey Knit that a promissory note is not arbitrable. And in Renu Sagar, there was uh, the payment was secured by issue of promissory notes. So we litigated on that, on that basis, and in Renu Sagar, actually. Set the track right, made arbitration more respectable in that sense. Because there were aberrations in the meanwhile, ONGC versus Western, and ironically, Prismian was directly contrary to Renu Sagar in that sense that in Renu Sagar I was trying to stall arbitration, in Prismian I was trying to enforce an international award, but. There are two other elements also which I would like to mention. One is Venture Group Global, where I was instrumental in carrying that litigation. I didn't have the conduct of the litigation. I appeared as an Indian law expert. We succeeded before the arbitral tribunal when uh, the Satyam scam broke out. Unfortunately, the fallout of that was. The enforcement of the award was stalled on the basis of so-called fraud, and the matter remains in the Supreme Court. The other is Alimenta versus Nafit. Now that went back decades. I think it started in '87. We were acting for Alimenta. We had a phosphor arbitration clause. Nafit injuncted us. We got the injunction vacated. By the Supreme Court, we lost in the Delhi High Court. We succeeded in the Supreme Court. The awards came in our favor, and the enforcement was under the Foreign Awards Act of '61. Now, Nafit's defense was that it could not export to Elementa the shipment of groundnut seeds, which it which it had contracted to exploit. And we had a number of rulings, including from the Privy Council, that merely an export embargo cannot excuse performance. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court—I think it's reported in 2020—the Supreme Court did not allow the awards to be enforced because NAFED, which was the Federal Cooperative Society, was given a direction by the government of India. That you cannot export, and that was by way of a letter written by the secretary to the government to Nafid, and the Supreme Court held well. That was an order issued by the government. Enforcing the award would be contrary to the public policy of India. So, even as late as 2020, you do see some amount of. Going back, yeah. Mm -hmm. By and large, we are progressing mm -hmm. on the right track, but we have this tendency to have hiccups now and then. 
and not often can we ever shoot out. interesting, actually. You know, no jurisdiction is immune from that, of course. But uh, the way that I've seen Indian arbitration law develop uh, over the last few years, I mean, apart from very skilled lawyers like yourselves who argue the cases, are involved in the cases, you need judges who actually implement the right decisions. And there's no doubt that the Indian Supreme Court, given its recent staffing, albeit Justice Nariman has just retired from the Supreme Court, has had driving forces behind the development of the law, which has no doubt been helpful. But no, MP, thank you for sharing those thoughts on those cases and, and how you've seen the law develop. Now, let me just as a sort of couple of last things before we unfortunately have to wrap for today. I want to ask you a fairly serious question and then, and then a more light-hearted one, because I can't resist given how long I've known you, asking you some more lighthearted questions. So let me just ask you the, the fairly serious one first. What sorts of snippets of advice would you give aspiring, up-and-coming lawyers to be thinking about wanting to further their careers most fruitfully? It sounds simple and it's quite obvious, but I think my constant advice is know your facts. Presume that you do not know law. Get to know the law till you're absolutely comfortable. And third, it's not of paramount importance that you must win. Of course, you should if everything goes well. But what is of paramount importance is have you done your best, which means literally the best. Mm. So that's, I think if you get these three things right, any young lawyer can become a successful lawyer. And I've seen that happening. Great advice. And in fact, uh, I sh shouldn't name him, but a very well-known English QC, who you and I know very well, has an expression, there's only one acceptable standard, which I think epitomizes one of the points you made. And also there's one, and I, and I shouldn't name him, but there's a mutual client of ours who's a GC based in Mumbai, who you know very well, and I know well, very well too, said one of the things about MP is he tells you the things you don't want to hear. And I, and I think that's a really important thing as well, because we want to ensure that we do the right job for the client, but making sure that we tell the client, look, sometimes you haven't got the best side of the argument here. You should settle this case. You should do something different. Don't just go on an aggressive front because, you know, so telling the clients what they don't want to hear. And that's something that one of our mutual clients told me about you, which I think is, sums it up perfectly, actually. So let me just ask you, just as we have to wrap very shortly, some, some lighthearted things. I mean, hopefully these will be things you can answer. So tell me, what's your favorite holiday destination? Okay, actually, that's pretty straightforward now to answer. My favorite holiday destination is my country home. Mm -hmm. in, in Tamil Nadu, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's one place where you can completely unwind and if you want to work which I don't want to but I have to I can work but otherwise otherwise I think I would name two cities not two countries London and Paris mm. two very fine cities I must say <laughs> and, and do not ask me in which order. I'm not going to ask you that in that because I know that's a difficult question and then, sort of, you know, what's your favorite music, band, uh, singer, style of music? What's your favorite? Uh, I have very Catholic taste in music, Gautam. I listen from, I go from pop to Western classical to some Indian film music. 
to some classical Indian music. I, I think the important thing is, does it sound pleasant to my ears? <laughs> That's a, good, a great answer. And then my last one is, have you got a favorite film that, you know, even if you've not watched it for a while, you go back to it or it cheers you up or it, or it excites you when you watch it again? Cheers you up. There are several that cheer me up. I think somehow the classic would be oh, Dr. Shiva. Classic, all right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I feel like I've been speaking to Omar Sharif on this podcast. So, <laughs> so uh, look, MP, thank you very, very much. It's been an incredibly enlightening, enjoyable, uplifting discussion with you. I'm proud to be able to call you a friend. I'm even prouder to call you an inspiration to me and a friend to so many people that I know, that I respect and admire. So MP, thank you very, very much. It's been a delight to speak to you today and thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Gautam. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.